You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this morning, church family. Hope you're doing well. Do me a favor, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Haggai chapter 2 this morning. We're continuing our second week of this series in the book of Haggai, looking at kingdom priority. And if you you weren't with us last week, I mean, let me give you a a brief kind of recap of where we're at. And this is such a timely book for us, especially in a a season of transition as a church, as we are two weeks out now for the launch of Northway. And yet um, we're going to see God's faithfulness, uh, not only this transition, but the transitions we saw 2,600 years ago. And that's where Haggai starts with. 2,600 years ago, there's a, a people that are in a divided kingdom the northern and southern half of Israel. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And because of their idolatry, both eventually are taken captive. And under the most recent one in 586, the Babylonians come in. They capture the southern kingdom of Judah. They haul God's people off 900 miles away into Babylonian captivity where they will be for 50 years until the Persians come in and knock off the Babylonians, they take over uh, control of the Jews and they are a little bit more religiously tolerant. They allow the people to return to Jerusalem to go rebuild what was broken down by the Babylonians um, while still being under Persian rule. And about 50,000 Jews take them up on that offer and head back to Jerusalem. If you remember from last week, we talked about how it's going to be Nehemiah, your book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, who's going to go in and help rebuild the city. He's going to build a wall. And then Ezra is going to come in and he's going to rebuild the people. But it's Zerubbabel who will be the governor of this new community that will help rebuild the temple where the glory of God once dwelt in Jerusalem. And now they're getting the opportunity to rebuild it so the glory of God would dwell there once again. And you remember from last week, the people get started on building the foundation of the temple and no sooner do they get started than persecution sets in from the neighboring Samaritans, chokes out their desire to work for the Lord and so they quit. All 50,000 cease work on the Lord's temple and instead they run to go panel their own houses where they start blinging out their own homes for the next 15 years while the Lord's house lies in ruins and God sends along the prophet Haggai 15 years in to call the people to repentance, to let them see the futility of what it means to be a people who exist to build into their own kingdom while the Lord's kingdom lies in ruins, to understand that God didn't liberate them out of the Exodus so that they would go back and worship idols and build into their own personal kingdom. He liberated them so that they could worship the living God, Yahweh, that they would spend their lives investing into his eternal mission, his eternal purposes, which can never be taken away. And the people repent, if you remember at the end of last week, from the inside out, their hearts first rend in worship to the Lord, and then the work of their hands ensues, and they get back to work on the temple. It's a beautiful picture of kingdom priority, a beautiful picture of restoration and repentance, and yet it only lasts for three weeks. Haggai chapter two, three weeks in, and we see here in verse one, in the seventh month, On the 21st day of the month, it is October 17th, 520 BC, three and a half weeks after they had gotten back to work, 
when the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet yet once more. Now, here's what's interesting about that dating. We're about three and a half weeks later, October 17th. And if you know anything about your Jewish calendar, this date actually falls right towards the end of what would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the major pilgrimage feasts for for Jews that they would come in from all over to come celebrate. And they were celebrating two different aspects. Uh, One was agriculturally. This was the grape harvest. This is when the grape harvest is coming in. The wine is flowing. There is much joy. There is much celebration. But spiritually speaking, it is also um, a time when they remembered God's faithfulness to his people in the wilderness journey following the exodus where God provided for them and ultimately brought them into the promised land and the people would recreate the scene by sending up little tents all over the community to resemble what it was like when they lived out in the wilderness and how God provided for them and they had all these aspects of celebration and this should be a time of incredible celebration as the temple foundation is going up, it's grape harvest, it's, it's tabernacles or feast of booths. This should be a party time right here. And yet, as we're going to see in just a moment, discouragement sets in. And the people start doubting the work of God and they quit again. Now, can that happen to us, by the way? Can you be in a season where God is really pouring out his faithfulness and you've seen the hand of God move and there's reason to celebrate, but for whatever reason, you slip into this moment of doubt where you really wonder if God is really that good. And that doubt turns into discouragement and that discouragement just turns into wanting to quit. You ever been there? I don't know about you. Maybe you're more holy than I am. That happens quite a bit with me. Like there's, there's many days when I just... God can be doing amazing things. And just because of my own sin nature within, there's times where I just go, man, I don't see it. And there's times to where I feel so discouraged that I want to quit. And I don't know about you. I've got certain fantasy jobs that I run to in my mind on days of discouragement. And I'm going to bet they're not like your jobs. On my worst days, you know what I want to go do? I want to go open a donut shop. (laughs) Seriously. There's days when I go, Lord, I've had enough. I don't want to put up with this stuff anymore. I just want, I want to work from four to about 10 in the morning with all my family. We're all in there back there together, slinging dough, mindless. That sounds amazing. There's other days where one of my other fantasy jobs is being a PE, uh, uh, elementary school PE teacher. Sweats all day. You just get to wear sweats. You're not grading papers. You're just jump roping to the glory of the Lord. That sounds amazing. And if it's not that, probably one of my favorite to run to is driving a forklift at Lowe's. Because I'm like, man, mindless checkout, put some earbuds in and just haul stuff around. Until I found out that you can't have earbuds while you're driving a forklift. So that just took that one off for me. But then I, I also dream about like doing a food truck. I've got a lot of fantasy jobs here that just create my mind. I'm not quitting. I'm not going anywhere. But there's those days. I just want to smoke meat and offer burnt offerings to the Lord for the rest of my life. Like that's where I want to run to on my days of doubt and discouragement when I just want to quit doing what I'm doing and check out. And you've probably got yours too. But that's exactly where we're going to find Israel right here. And I want you to see why. Starting in verse 2. Haggai comes along and God tells him, I want you to speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah. And I want you to speak to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest 
And all the remnant of the people, all 50,000, I want you to give this message to. And here's what he does. In verse 3, he's going to ask for a show of hands. Show of hands to you 50,000 people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? In other words, here's what he's asking. Out of the 50,000 people that just returned to Jerusalem and you're looking upon this heap of rubble that used to be Solomon's temple. He goes, how many of you were actually not only alive but were around and saw that 60 years ago? And you got to understand, out of that 50,000 people, there were definitely a number of older men and women who were old enough to have been around before captivity and remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And you got to imagine that scene. They're sitting here looking at piles of rocks, knowing how glorious that former day once was. And Haggai asked them, how do you see it now? Does it not seem as nothing in your eyes? I mean, you circle the, circle the word glory and circle the word nothing. Because that's how the people felt. This thing that I've been set free to come rebuild is nothing like what I once saw. This thing will never be as great as what I experienced years ago. It just can't be. And, and, and I want you to notice um, Ezra gives us some background on exactly what's going on right here as to why the people would quit. In Ezra chapter 3, listen to these words. Ezra tells us, Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house, they'd seen Solomon's temple. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though there were many who shouted aloud for joy, but it was so much so, this weeping, that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the old men weeping. For the people shouted with such a great shout and the sound was heard far away. I want you to imagine this scene. The younger folks who were born in captivity over in Babylon, they had never seen Solomon's temple. They don't know anything different. All they know is they've been released from bondage to go back home to the stories they've heard about from their forefathers, and they get to be used by God to start this new work where the glory, the Shekinah of God would dwell and be a light unto the nations, and they get to be a part of it. And they are screaming with joy. You can hear it from miles away. And the older men, who remember that former day, they're weeping with lament because this piece of junk will never be like what I once knew. And Ezra goes on to say, their weeping was so loud that it overpowered the zeal of the others around them and choked it out. And they all quit working. Man, can that happen, by the way? You've been there, you've been in those moments where you've seen something so great happen and you just can't fathom a way forward. 
That's where these people are. But this thing is a whole other, other thing when it gets into the mission of God. I remember the first time I saw this visual picture. Many of you know that I, I was out in Fresno before this. I was a campus pastor of a multi-site church out there, very similar to the village in terms of how its evolution came about. And I was one of the campus pastors who would help take one of the first campuses uh, of our church back in 2011 when I first went out there. And it was a church similar here at Northway or the Denton campus. And it was a once thriving body that had kind of dwindled down. And here was a building in need of a people. And then you have this church over here that's a people in need of a building. And they merged, merged together and married, so to speak, there. And I came in and was leading that campus and had the privilege of getting to shepherd both the new folks who were excited about this new church and the remnant of older folks who had uh, come over with that church. But I'll never forget the visual picture that I saw when I went into the fellowship hall of this place. And in the fellowship hall were these pictures on the wall of the different confirmation classes that the previous church had had over the years, going back to the 60s. When this church was in its heyday, 2,500, 3,000 people all gathering on fire for the mission of the Lord. And you can see this first picture from like 1965 and it's the pastor surrounded by like a hundred folks that were part of that confirmation class. And then the pictures kind of go along and throughout the 60s and 70s, it's that kind of number. It's this pastor surrounded by this herd of people who are kind of coming into the church. And then by the time you get to the 80s, it was like the pastor and about 70 people. Then as the pastor and about 40 people. And you get all the way, the last picture on the wall is from 1993. It was the pastor and one person. I am watching a visual pictorial of the death of a church. And I went to lunch with the former senior pastor who is now a part of my staff with me. And I sat him down and I just said, hey, can you tell me what happened? And he said, Shay, it was just hard. It's like God was doing this amazing work and our leadership just could not turn the corner and found themselves constantly looking in the rearview mirror at what used to be and trying to figure out every way possible of how to get back there rather than trusting God with going forward. And we just got to the place where we complained so much, it just killed it. And I thought, oh my gosh. See, I think what's going on here with this scene in Haggai is very similar. There's two specific issues that this church or this this body of of God's people here in Haggai are, are facing that I think are common to what we can face as a church on any given day or in any given season. One of those is the issue of just rear view discouragement where you're so busy looking through the rearview mirror that you cannot look out the front windshield and trust God for what's next, only to be discouraged over why it's not how it used to be. And it gets to the point where that discourages you so much that you want to quit. And the second issue is when that discouragement then turns into division because you don't want anybody else being excited about what God may do. You want them to lament with you over what you don't have from the past. And that leads to them wanting to quit. That's the two issues that are going on right here. One is death by comparison and the other is death by criticism. And they can be killer in a church. 
When it comes to death by comparison, we, it's when we get to the point again that we're looking so much backwards that we are no longer moving forward, and that becomes a check engine light for the church to be aware of. When all we do is start referring to the good old days back when life and church were good. And we have to beware, and, and I'll say this as a strong exhortation, you can hold me accountable first and then we'll hold accountable to one another. But the day that we get to where in this pulpit you hear me or any one of our elders referring to the work of God in the past tense, we're done. We're already done. When that happens. Now, I'm not saying there's not a time to reflect and remember upon God's faithfulness in the past. Clearly, God wove that into the fabric of Israel. He created feasts and festivals so they would never forget. Every year, that's what's going on right here at the Feast of Tabernacles. They're remembering the faithfulness of God. That's why God wove in stones of remembrance so they would never forget the faithfulness of God. But that wasn't to solidify them in the past. It was to propel them into the future, to trust God that the God who was faithful still is. He's not done. That's what that is for. God did not intend for us to live out this mission that way where we log about 10 solid years in our youth group only to spend the next 50 comparing everything else to what was. That'll kill a church. That'll kill a marriage. That's why social media can be so dangerous for a marriage. It's like on Facebook, everybody's just comparing what other people are doing and then assuming, man, that's not going to happen here and it grows discouragement when the truth is, nobody's posting their junk. Nobody's posting, hey, we had a fight this week. I didn't talk to my spouse for seven hours. Check that out. Like nobody's doing that, right? We're just posting what's great. And then we have this slow death by comparison when we're weighing our situation against somebody else's and not trusting God for what he's doing in it. See, when it comes to the church, the apostle Paul gave us a clear exhortation about what the mission of the church is in Philippians 3, verse 13 and following, when he says these words, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, and let those of us who are mature think this way. A mark of Christian maturity is a trust with God over the future just as much as we did in the past. That is a mark of maturity. So one problem that can face the church is thinking too much upon the past to the point that it paralyzes us, paralyzes us from moving forward in trust with God. But the second issue I mentioned here is the death by criticism. And that is when we allow our own personal discouragement which, by the way, let me just validate that for a moment. I'm not saying don't be discouraged. I'm not saying there aren't seasons. All of us have them. When we just have those moments when we just wrestle with, God, I wish it was like it used to be. But in those moments, we are intended to take our discouragement and render it unto the Lord and trust. But the problem comes when we don't do that and instead we turn and let this discouragement flow over onto the people around us. And we begin robbing the joy of those who happen to be excited about what God's doing. 
When discouragement turns to gossip and gossip turns to criticism and criticism turns to slander, when that happens, the work of the Lord will get hindered. Now, here, here's how this plays out. It starts with an, an idolatry in our own hearts where we find ourselves more committed to our own personal happiness than we are committed to God's missional holiness. That's where that idol begins, and we start canonizing a season of life or an experience that was meaningful for us, but we canonize it to the point that we are now resistant to change because we cannot believe that God, who is faithful then, will be faithful in the days ahead. And what happens then is we begin the slow drip of complaining and gossiping and slandering to the people around us. And it goes a little something like this. And every church I've been at has experienced this, and I myself have been guilty of it. We all are. But every church I've been a part of, even the village, has experienced seasons of plateau. And in that moment, we kind of start pointing the finger at different things. And it'd be like somebody going, man, you remember about seven years ago? Man, when the village Dallas Northway campus was just pumping, baby. Four services, 3,000 folks coming in. We're all together. Can you believe this now? Rolling off this thing. It'd be, it'd be like, man, remember back when we called them home groups? And now they're wanting to call it gospel communities? What's wrong with this leadership, man? Back in my day, man, that's when, it, that's when God, that's when Jesus was alive, you know? You're like, what? And, and it begins rolling over onto others and you don't even realize it, but you're actually just trying to pull everybody down into the grave with you. And this is a dangerous place. And the root behind this that leads to a fruit of dissension is dangerous. Listen to how the Proverbs put this. Proverbs 6 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. That's a Hebrew poetic way of saying when you read that in the Proverbs, I'm going to give you a list of seven things. And the seventh one is the worst one. Here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And here comes number seven. And the one who sows discord among brothers. In other words, another translation says, one who stirs up dissension among other people. God says, there's a lot of things that I loathe. There's one that really is an abomination to me. And it's when there is disunity in my body because of people who just won't trust me. And this becomes a killer place. And the root again behind these is when we start as a church worshiping forms over function. And you know what I mean by that? The function of the church is that which is permanent, enduring, and binding regardless of seasons or circumstances. Uh, forms are we exist to glorify God. That will never change. We exist to make disciples. That commission bears upon the church in any generation. We exist to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. That mission will never change in any generation. It is a permanent, binding, enduring function of God's church. The forms 
are the particular vehicles by which the function gets carried out from one generation to another. And those forms can change in season to season. We, we, we can be shrewd in the forms to, to leverage particular forms to carry out that function. In one generation, it may be Sunday school. In another generation, it may be small groups. In one generation, it's, it's hymns only. In other ones, it's Hillsong only, whatever. In other generations, it's Awanas or it's not. And we, we can fight for these forms because they're meaningful to us. God used them in profound ways for us, but these forms are not canon. They are not permanent, enduring, and binding regardless of circumstances. The function is make disciples, glorify God, and he'll bring us along to that. And that becomes one of the hardest places to wrestle, both as a church and even as an individual. This happens to us. The church, though, we become notorious for worshiping forms. And if you don't believe me, do this. One author suggested just leave something in place for three weeks in a row in a church and then change it on the fourth week. And you watch how many emails you get. Like all of a sudden, you know, you can have a keyboard on this side of the stage, which first of all, let's just be honest, it's not, it's not a piano. Well, that's one hate mail. And then <laughs> it's not even a pipe organ before that. There's another one, but okay, it's a keyboard. And then we have this over here. And one week we go put it over here and you're going to get an email. You're not allowed to move keyboards from one side to the other. Don't you know I sit over there and that's where my focal point is. And, and we just get into this. You're like, what, excuse me? I remember being in Flower Mound uh, uh, up there when I was campus pastor there, and I remember a, a lady came and just chewed me out because we we're allowing coffee into the sanctuary. This is the house of God. We don't, um, so the house of God is you, and I'm pretty sure what's going on in your house is far worse than going on right here. I didn't say that at all. I didn't say that. I'm sanctified, all right? Sanctified. I wanted to say it. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. But we worship these. We worship these forms. And what it is, it's a love affair with nostalgia. And I'm guilty of it. You know how I know? Because I'm 45. I'm feeling it more than I ever before. I, I moved back here. I grew up in Richardson. I haven't been back there in like 30 years. And now I'm back here. I'm driving down old roads I drove down when I was in high school. I'm like, this is weird and awesome. And every grocery store I go into right now, I don't know why, they're all playing 80s and 90s music. Just sucking me back in a time machine right now. And I want it because I, I looked back upon a sweet season in my life where it was comfortable. And I want that. The same has happened. You ever, I mean, every, everybody, every one of us become like our parents. We say we won't, but we do. Do you remember the day when you stepped into your parents' house and you realized the exact year that they quit? Do you remember that? Based upon what you see in their eyes. You go to my parents' house right now. 1982. It's when it all said, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going any further. DVD player? Nope. Stick with VHS. Big tube television? I like it. Feels good. In fact, I may go black and white. And so it's just like frozen, canonized in time. That's one thing in your own personal life. That's another thing when it comes to the mission of God. That kind of discouragement and criticism can kill the momentum of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the church. And what do you do? What if you're God, what, how do you encourage the people who are wrestling with discouragement, who just can't see a way forward? Well, the answer we'll see is in verse four and following. Haggai comes along with some much needed encouragement. Yet now be strong, 
O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when, I, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. I don't know if you realize there's four exhortations that are given in there. Be strong, get to work, I'm with you, and don't be afraid. Those are the exact exhortations we saw last week. Only here, it's actually interesting because in this exhortation, he roots them in the Exodus account. You see, up to this point, the Exodus event of God bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, all the wonderful miracles that accompanied it, that Exodus event was the biggest landmark of remembrance for all the Jews. It was the, the one event, if you had no others, but you did, but it was at least the one event as an Israelite you could always look back on and hang your hat on that event and go, no matter how bad of a day I'm having today, Wow, that he, our God was faithful to us. The God of the universe did that for us. And you could hang your hat on it. And God, the interesting thing about that event, though, is God made a promise to the Jews. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, you remember what that promise was? It's in Exodus 19. It was the promise of God's continued presence his abiding presence in their midst. When he issued the covenant with Moses and he told the people, no matter what you may do towards me, I, your God, will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So God uses that same promise after liberating his people. And he uses it again here after he's liberated them again. I'm still with you. In all of these captivities, and all of your idolatry, I have never forsaken you. And I am with you, so don't be afraid. I've got you on this. I've not dropped the ball on you. Just because all you see is rubble in front of you doesn't mean that's what I see. Trust me in this. But here's what's even more interesting. If you were a Jew and you heard those words, it's not just the Exodus you're thinking about. Those are actually the exact words that God gave once before. And in fact, when David handed off his kingdom to his son Solomon, and Solomon was about to dedicate the temple, David gave these same words to Solomon over that first temple. Listen to these words from 1 Chronicles 28. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous. Do it! Get back to work. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So for a people who thought that this rubble represented the fact that God couldn't do anything greater than the temple before them, God takes the exact same scripture, the exact same words that were given at the first temple, 
and gives it to him here on this second temple. As if to say the same God who is behind those glory years is the same God who's doing this work now. And I don't drop the ball on my people. You can trust me. And so, incidentally, do we need to hear that from time to time? As the Lord's church, a people who are committed right now to the building of Christ's church, to investing the gospel into the lives of our lost family and friends and coworkers and neighbors who are caring for the broken and the marginalized among us who are seeking to live missionally in the city of Dallas and to the ends of the earth, a people who will engage with persecution and hardship right now. Do we need to hear those things are not in vain? That our God is still behind them? that our God is still with us, that he's not just the God that was committed to your youth group days. He is the God who is with us in our work for him right now. And so be encouraged. Well, there's one more, though, reason for the people to be encouraged that God is going to speak to here in this last section, verses 6 through 9, and that is this thing you happen to be building. You have no idea the unique glory that is about to come from this temple that makes Solomon's not even hold a candle to it. You see this in verse six, when Haggai comes yet again and tells them, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations will come into this place, will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Because the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house, that means the temple that is yet to come, shall be greater than the former, the one that was says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give my shalom, my peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There is something with this temple that you just can't see yet, and you're going to have to take it by faith and not by sight. This is called, what's given here, a progressive revelation. Haggai is revealing things to them that would not only happen with this temple in the near future, but would also happen in the distant future. What is a prophetic shadow of what would come in the final days. So in one sense, they need to know this temple has significance that they're building right now because eventually this is the temple that will be standing when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes. Eventually, this temple will get completed. A few hundred years later, after it's completed, King Herod will come along, and he's going to bling out this temple, make it even bigger and prettier. And then you're going to find a young boy who's going to be sitting there while his parents are looking frantically for where he is. As Jesus sits at the feet of the rabbis in this temple, conveying wisdom and truth like they have never heard before at this temple. This is the temple where Jesus will drive out the money changers who had turned this temple into a den of robbers. This is the same temple where Jesus will be put on trial, where Jesus will ultimately be led just outside this temple 
to his death, but his subsequent resurrection where he will give his life for the sins of the world. So yes, this temple has some real significance in Jewish history as well as in world history concerning the Messiah. But we also know that this temple will eventually be destroyed, won't it? In 70 AD, the Roman army under General Titus will come in and they will level this temple worse than even the Babylonians did. There won't be one stone left upon another. It will be completely decimated. And even to this day, there is a dome of the rock of Islam that sits in place of this temple to this day. And so this whole thing is going to get wiped out. But what Haggai is revealing, what God is revealing through Haggai, is this work actually has greater significance than just brick and mortar. Do you remember right before Jesus' betrayal and then execution? He was standing in the temple when he made this comment. He said, you'll tear this temple down, and three days later, I'll rebuild it again. And everybody thought he was talking about Jerusalem. And indeed, Jerusalem temple will be torn down a few years after, but never got rebuilt again. What's he talking about? He wasn't talking about brick and mortar. He was talking about himself. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the house of God. And what he is building right now through his death and resurrection and conquering ascension at the throne of God, he is building a new temple where the glory of God doesn't dwell in brick and mortar, but dwells within his bride, the church. And Jesus promised not even hell itself in Matthew 16 will prevail against this temple, against this bride, against this church and the work that's going on here where the dwelling of God resides. But even beyond that, we go further into the future of Messianic prophecy and we know from prophecies such as Ezekiel and Hebrews and 1 Thessalonians as well as in Revelation that in the final days there will be a new temple built by the Lord himself. And in that day, we are told the earth will shake, the heavens will shake, the nations will be brought to their knees. Everything around us will fall apart, but one thing will stand, and that is God himself. He will be our temple, and in those final days, it's in that final house where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come, and they'll bring the treasures of the earth, the praises of the earth, under the feet of God in that moment, as worthy is the Lamb. And in that moment, Haggai says here, there is little insignificant work about that work one day. And you're ultimately building towards that. And so your labor is not in vain. One day, the very presence of God and the praise of the nations will fill that temple. And though the world might crumble around you, this work of yours will stand. So get back to work. And do y'all see why this is here? Do you see what we can glean from a word given to this body 2,600 years ago that I think we so desperately need to hear today? That is number one, change is inevitable, y'all. You don't need me to tell you that. Change is inevitable. And with change, discouragement is inevitable. We're all gonna walk through it. 
I get it. Not all of us are fired up about change. I struggle with change in my own life. I struggle with transition. I've had a lot of it. But it is inevitable. It is going to happen. And when it does, what we learn from Haggai is we must guard against the temptation first to simply live in the past. To, to continually look out the rearview mirror rather than trusting God out the front windshield. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Because you're not, you're not trusting forward. You're not moving straight in the mission of God. Kind of like when you're driving a car down the road and you look back, what do you do? You get out of line. You drift. And when we look in the rearview mirror, we hit kingdom drift. We hit mission drift. He wants to compel us forward based on the faithfulness in the past to trust him with faithfulness in the future, even when you can't see it, especially because you can't see it. And we have to guard against that. We have to guard against worshiping forms over function and canonizing preferences of the past as if those are the only ones that God can carry out his mission in. And secondly, we've got to guard against allowing those discouragements and the temptation therein to turn into bitterness and gossip and slander where we begin robbing the joys of others because we can't wait to grumble and complain about how much we don't trust what God is doing right now. That becomes an awful place to be. And that bitterness, y'all, you've heard, you may have heard this said before, bitterness is like an octopus. It doesn't just have one tentacle that deals with one issue. It's got multiple. And those tentacles get into every area of your life. It's not just bitterness over the event that happened. It'll turn into another one and another one and another one, and the whole thing will choke out your zeal to move forward. And worse yet, It'll choke out the zeal of those around us whom God has redeemed and liberated for the sake of serving him. We have to guard against those. Those will kill the church. It will cut the mission. And instead, what we need to do is we need to take our hopes and turn them upward instead of backward. We got to lift them upward. The emphasis is not necessarily always on where we worship or how we worship and what form. The emphasis is on who we worship. Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though our circumstances may have changed in an instant, God has not. He is faithful and he's worthy of our trust. So turn your hopes upward and then fourthly, get back to work. There is much kingdom ground still to be gained. And God has liberated us for such a time as this. And I don't know how that lands on you personally, whether you're at, I got to imagine there's some in here that are walking through some really difficult seasons of loss right now. Really difficult seasons of transition personally. Maybe in your job or relationships or where you've moved or with family, whatever it may be. And it is, you're at a place of discouragement right now and maybe even despair. And may you be encouraged to know your God has not forsaken you. He's got you in the middle of this. And lastly, I I couldn't leave without just saying in the unique season we're in, I just want to recognize I get the transition that's happened around here. I get that we have some seniors in this place right now. This is not their first rodeo with change. They have seen Northway Baptist Church move to the Village Church, now moving to Northway Church. There's been a lot of transition. Some of y'all are in here that you're, you're wrestling with just the loss of the village and what that meant for you back in the day. And I want to validate that. I understand that. But I think if if God were sending in Haggai today, it might be, who among you were here when this was Northway Baptist Church? Does this not seem like nothing to you? 
Who, who among you were here for the last 10 years when you saw the village church and God's just unrelenting pouring out of the Holy Spirit on this place for 10 years? Does it not seem like nothing? And yet what I believe God would say for us today is he is not done with his church and he is not done on this corner of Walnut Hill and Marsh Lane. There is still kingdom ground to be gained in the city of Dallas and the glory of God still needs to go out like the waters cover the sea. And we get the unspeakable privilege of Northway Church of getting to be a part of that for the day ahead. Amen? So let us be encouraged, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely word. Thank you that your word is alive and active. It wasn't just good for 2,600 years ago. It's good today. And we can find encouragement in it. And so, God, would you please meet any of us in this room right now who are wrestling with change and transition and are wrestling with discouragement and loss. And would you be so kind to remind us that your covenant still rings true. You will not forsake your people. You have not abandoned us. And you are doing a work that we can't even see right now. Help us to trust in it and to yield lives, not paralyzed in fear from the past, but to have mobilized feet that are ready, hands that are ready for the present and the future. For the glory of your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9, 11, and 5.30 and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.